Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Okay, welcome. Uh, it's my pleasure today to welcome Christina Garcia to Story Hour. She was born in Cuba and moved as a two-year-old with her parents to the U.S., she grew up in Queens, Brooklyn Heights, and Manhattan. After earning an undergraduate degree at Barnard, she received a master's degree from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. She then worked for Time Magazine as a cultural and political reporter. In 1992, she published her first novel, Dreaming in Cuban, which tells the story of a family fractured by the Cuban Revolution as some stay and some flee into exile. Michiko Kakutani wrote in the New York Times, in Cristina Garcia's dazzling first novel, three generations of women dream about Cuba. Their birthplace haunts their memories and reveries, shapes their hopes and ambitions. Ms. Garcia stands revealed in this novel as a magical new writer. It is remarkable that this is a first novel. It is even more remarkable that Ms. Garcia achieves in her de debut what many more experienced writers never attempt. Close quotes. Uh, the book was widely and well-reviewed and nominated for the National Book Award. Since then, Christina has borne out that extraordinary promise in four other novels, The Aguero Sisters, Monkey Hunting, A Handbook to Luck, and The Lady Matador's Hotel. In The Lady Matador's Hotel, the matador of the title is Suki Palacios, a Californian of Mexican and Japanese descent. Suki is in the capital of an unnamed conflict-ridden Central American country for a bullfighting competition. In the hotel she is staying in, other guests include a suicidal Korean businessman, an ex-guerrilla fighter consumed by thoughts of revenge, a slick lawyer who runs a shady business in international adoptions, a colonel who has committed many atro atrocities in the recent civil war, and an expatriate Cuban poet. Ms. Magazine wrote, Garcia's subject matter is epic, civil war, assassination attempts, historical amnesia, godly messages dispatched from a cannery, xenophobia, communication with the dead, redemption of art. Garcia is at the height of her imaginative powers, and the Lady Matador's Hotel is a tour de force at once hopeful and hopeless. Close quotes. Apart from these novels, Christina has edited two anthologies. One is uh, an anthology of contemporary Cuban literature and the other of contemporary Mexican and Chicano literature. In 2008, she published two works for young readers, The Dog Who Loved the Moon and I Want to Be Your Shoebox. A collection of poetry, The Lesser Tragedy of Death, was published in 2010. Her newest work, Dreams of Significant Girls, is a young adult novel set in a Swiss boarding school in the 1970s. Please join me in welcoming the many talented Christina Garcia. Thank you, Vikram, and thank you. Uh, where is Beverly? <laughs> oh, hello there. Uh, and everyone at uh, Berkeley who made it possible for me to come today. It's just such a pleasure to be back uh, here on this campus and in this beautiful part of the world. Um, I'm currently in... West Texas, so believe me, <laughs> I am very grateful for this invitation. Um, anyway, tonight, uh, I also want to thank uh, many of my friends from Mills College uh, who came out to visit uh, with me tonight. Um, and uh, I taught at Mills College for a number of years and still have many, many good friends there. Um, so uh, tonight I think I'm going to just concentrate and read excerpts from uh, the latest novel, uh, 
Lady Matador's Hotel. You already got a brief and wonderful synopsis. Thank you, Vikram, for that. Um, and, uh, and I want to dedicate this uh, reading to uh, Sam Senton, who's a former student of mine at Mills College, a novelist, <laughs> who's having his first book published uh, this coming fall. Uh, and the title is... The League of Somebodies. <laughs> okay, so watch out for that title in the fall. Um, okay, well, I just maybe I'll just start right from the beginning. Oh, the other thing I thought I might do is uh, instead of reading, 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 and then saving the questions for the end, I'll read just short sections, a um, couple of pages each, and then open it up to questions, maybe read it a little more, a few more questions. That way uh, I'd love to hear from you, and we can get the conversation started sooner rather than later. Okay. Okay, so this is just right from the opening. Um, the, the novel takes place uh, over the course of a week, uh, very distilled. Uh, many of the characters uh, are flitting in and out of each, li- each other's lives. Um, some converge, some don't. Um, the book the, the genesis of the book was really quite accidental. And uh, a number of years ago, I went with my sister to Guatemala, Guatemala City, uh, to help her adopt a baby girl. And as part of that process, we were required to stay uh, in a, this luxury hotel in the capital. I know it does sounds really tough <laughs> to be forced to stay in this extremely luxurious hotel with several pools and so on, but we really were. It really felt like a kind of lockdown there. We could not leave with the baby under any circumstances without any you know without prior permission um, and in that hotel was a convergence of so many different um, there were so many different things going on at the, at that time there was a hemispheric military conference going on so you know you saw generals from Paraguay and Honduras and the US uh, all working out at the gym where I was you know with wraparound black sunglasses and scaring the hell out of me and um, and there were people there um, a lot of interesting a lot of um, uh, kind of right-wing Christian women there uh, coming down to scoop up local babies. Uh, There was just so much going on. I noticed also when I finally did get out of the hotel that there were all of these... um, uh, On the the edge of Guatemala City, all of these Korean-owned... textile factories. Anyway, it just seemed to me, I was in the middle of another novel, but I said, this is the novel I want to write. So that's a very long introduction, but just wanted to let you know how this came about. So, it begins with a quote from Fernando Pessoa. But I have in me all the dreams of the world. Room 719. The lady matador stands naked before the armoire mirror and unrolls her long pink stockings. She likes to put these on first, before the fitted pants and the stark white shirt, before the bullioned waistcoat and the ribs-length jacket densely embroidered with sequins and beads, before the braces and the soft black slippers and the wisp of silk at her throat, before the montera, an authentic one she ordered from a bullfighter shop in Madrid, which sits atop her hair, pulled back in a single braid, before her cape, voluminous as a colony of bats. 
Suki Palacios has come a long way to this spired hotel in the tropics, to this wedge of forgotten land between continents, to this place of hurricanes and violence and calculated erasures. She arrived yesterday from Los Angeles, trading the moody squalor of one city for another, the broken Spanish for one more lyrical. In a week, she will compete in the first battle of the Lady Matadors in the Americas. Suki is here early to display her skills and generate enthusiasm for the fight. By the time the other Matadoras arrive in the capital, its citizens will be clamoring for blood. Every window of the hotel looks inward to a crosshatch of courtyards and fountains, banyans and Madeira palms. The pool is visible beneath Suki's window, a glazed and artificial blue. A cascade of bougainvillea brightens the patio. Aviaries with raucous jungle parrots outmatch the mariachis in volume and plumage. The lady matador is tempted to submit to the hotel's shielding niceties to ignore the afternoon torpor awaiting her in the ring. She's grown accustomed to the jeering spectators who come to spit at her and provoke the bulls. They would gladly banish her from the sport altogether, interloper, scandalous woman playing at being a man. Suki will ignore them. She'll keep a watchful eye on each bull, on the thick hump of its beckoning neck muscle, which, if pierced properly will lead her straight to its heart. Before the final thrust of her sword will come preludes of ritual and fear, the whip of her red muleta, the stink of the bristling bull as it passes, her pivoting hips as she winds the beast around her in dizzying succession, the reverse slide across the dusty ring, fluttering her cape like butterfly wings, and always the clamorous heat. As she awaits the bull's last charge, sword in hand, in the suerte de recibir, her mouth will flood with a mineral saltiness, as if some essential earthly cycle has been fulfilled. The Lady Matador devours the sliced pear she ordered at great expense from room service. The pear is unsatisfactory, hard and mealy, but she finishes its seeds and all. Later, there will be time for more agreeable local fruit. Last night, Suki visited the cathedral off the colonial plaza. It was all souls day, and the whisperings to the dead rose from the pews, circling the naves until they hummed with a humid sorrow. Suki trusts in the enigmas of the unknown as she does her own eyesight or the pumping muscles of her heart. The trick is balancing the measurable known against the vast chaos that defines everything else. In medical school, Suki's professors praised her for her lack of sentimentality, but they underestimated her respect for the imperceptible. In the cathedral, Suki slipped a $50 bill into the offerings box and carefully lit 14 candles, one for every year she and her mother were both alive. Ritual is everything. Her father, a professional dancer, taught her this. 14 candles for her dead mother, Pink stockings first, one sliced ripe pear. For extra luck, silent sex with a stranger two days before a fight. On Friday, she'd found a suitable partner at an Hermosa Beach discotheque. Then in the shadowed moment before she steps into the ring, Suki repeats three words in Spanish and Japanese. 
arrogance, honor, death. The lady matador checks her profile in the dresser mirror. The profile her father insists is her grandfather's, a red-headed Mexican bullfighter who was famous in the 30s. Ramon Palacios lasted one season in Spain, billed as El Azteca. He fought in the same rings as the legendary Manolete and Joselito before a severe goring forced him back to Veracruz with a lame left leg. Suki's father grew up listening to Abuelo Ramon's stories along with the instantaneous revisions by his wife, an upper-class Sevillana he'd seduced at the height of his success. Abuelo Ramon was fond of saying that only matadors, like angels, can tame death and become immortal. Suki fastens her cape and with a final look around her sweeps out of the room. She passes a cluster of military men in the hallway, formal in their decorated khaki uniforms. From their uptight demeanor, Suki guesses they're from Chile. The officers are too dazzled by her to speak, fearful perhaps that the lady matador might turn out to be a disturbingly beautiful man. The elevator doors open to reveal a row of Latin American generals. Suki fights the urge to inspect their medals, pluck a few shiny ones for herself. Instead, she nods briskly and joins them. Conversation stops as the men pause to inhale the lady matador's alluring scent of pear and French perfume. Oh, you will fight the bulls today? The voice comes from the back of the descending elevator in confident, accented English. It belongs to a droopy-eyed colonel brought across the chest. See, Suki answers languidly as the elevator doors open. Then she strides across the bustling lobby of the hotel, where a bellboy whistles for the limousine that will take her to the ring. So that's a little bit of... uh, Suki, um, any questions so so far? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I want to know what kind of research you did for the bullfighting. Did you did you do a lot of googling, or was it? Did you did you go to a bullfight? I just did that so. I feel very authentic. Oh, thank you. Um, I struggled with that a lot because. Uh, um, just to give you an idea, my daughter has been a vegetarian since she was in fourth grade, okay? So so it was very tough for me to write these scenes. I mean, there are several bullfighting scenes in this book, obviously. And um, and I, I think it was three different times I actually bought a bus ticket to go to Tijuana to, to see the bullfights. Um, and every time I chickened out, <laughs> I did. I just didn't think, I thought I would have some nervous breakdown if I actually saw this happening, which is so weird because here I have this character who's kind of fearless and um, and is kind of challenging death every day, every, every time she steps into the ring and even beyond. Um, what finally helped a lot, aside from... Googling and reading a, lo- reading a lot. I can read anything. It's just uh, visually, I feel almost like helpless. Uh, um, there was a there was a a documentary that came out around the time I was maybe two thirds of the way through, you know, finished with the book, and uh, and it was um, I'm trying to remember the exact title. It was something something. Oh. 
should have written this down. But uh, it was it followed the lives of two female matadors in Spain, one who was quite famous in making a career of it uh, and had, it had made it, as it were, um, and one who is just a, a novice and struggling and who ends up very discouraged by all of the... Uh, the discrimination she experiences. Uh, it's very, very tough to be a female matador uh, <laughs> uh, in this world. There are uh, there were uh, rings, for example, where um, you know they, they won't they won't allow women to fight. Uh, sometimes the male matadors get together and uh, gang up and say, if you let a woman fight here, then you won't have any of us. Um, so very, very few women have um, broken into that extremely ritualistic male world. Um, and, uh, and I think that's one of the things that appe- appealed to me about it. Uh, anywhere where women are not wanted, I'm interested in transgression, you know. Uh, so, so, yeah, I did a lot of reading, and this film was very helpful. And, but I, I never made it to a bullfight, uh, strangely enough. <laughs> Any other questions for now? Yeah. Okay, I'll read a little bit more then. Um, I thought maybe I would read um, one of the other things that fascinated me about being in Guatemala. Even though Guatemala is never specifically mentioned in the book, it's just this unnamed tropical country, um, was uh, just after just nearly two decades of civil war, how I, I kept running through my head, how how are people reconciling? How do people... Uh, knowing, you know, knowing that this neighbor killed their brother, how do, how do they still live on? How does this function, especially in a place where um, there's a kind of forced amnesia about it all? It's not okay to talk about it. It's uh, there's this sense of uh, that forgetting is better than remembering uh, for for most people, and that was something that I kept encountering as I was stumbling around the hotel and trying to spy on the military conference and. <laughs> You know, eavesdropping on the adopting women and and all these other things that were going on. So, um, you know, one of the characters is um, a waitress in the hotel coffee shop, and an ex gorilla, uh, and and so anyway, I would I thought I would read a, a section uh, of hers. Uh, I should she she's well, it, it, it's self explanatory, but. Um, uh, She's been working there, and um, and she joined the guerrillas because uh, her brother was killed by uh, by the army. So, this takes place on the roof of the hotel. Most uh, most of the chapters are uh, kind of located rooms and roof and dining, you know, cafeteria, etc. So, this is taking place on the roof. It's been nearly a year since the ex-gorilla received flowers from her dead brother. Today's orchid is five-petaled, like an outstretched hand, neon yellow with rust-colored spots. Two more blossoms, one pink, one red, are stacked at its center just above the stem. Aura Estrada no longer questions how Julio manages to get the orchids to her at the hotel. The accompanying accompanying note instructs her to meet him on the roof at noon. 
Julio claims that Aura's longing conjures him from infinity. But she's been trying to reach him these last few months without success. Then out of the blue, Julio chooses the busiest time of day for them to meet. Most likely, he's trying to get her fired. He never did want her working at the hotel. Aura takes the elevator to the top floor then. Her pink and white uniform provides the necessary camouflage. No one will question her carrying this tray of sugar buns and tea. She passes the octogenarian actress who lives in the West Penthouse suite and orders ice with grenadine syrup for breakfast. The actress, quite emaciated, is wearing cream silk pajamas and her customary ostrich boa and has her triplet chihuahuas in tow. Aura greets the woman, but she's drifting in a world of her own. Aura climbs the last flight of stairs and shoulders open the roof's emergency door. The alarm doesn't sound. Her brother probably arranged this, too. It takes a moment for her eyes to adjust to the noon light. The city looks different from the rooftop, as if the buildings and trees, even the cathedral itself, were suspended by a menacing grid of wires. From here, she can see the colorful tents of the marketplace, the shoeshine boys with their polishes and brushes. If everything were turned upside down, would the people on the bottom end up on top? Not a chance, Oda thinks. The rich would still find a way to reign. The air is acrid, hemmed in by the surrounding mountains. Smoke rises from the city dump. A thunderstorm builds in the distance. Otto worries that the tar on the roof will stain her white, crepe-soled shoes. She sets down her tray, emptying her mind, and waits. Julio arrives differently each time. On a gust of wind, in the plaintive call of a morning dove, with the shifting, whispering leaves. Once he was a ring of blue encircling a disembodied voice. Another time, the ache between her shoulder blades. Sometimes she forgets what he looked like alive. Reliving Julio's last moments often coaxes him to return. The images are there behind Ada's eyelids, waiting to be replayed. The soldiers with their torches... The captain indicating with the jut of his chin that their cornfield be burned. Their family's plot was modest, barely enough to feed them all, Mamá, Cristina, Delma, Julio, and her. The day the soldiers came, it hadn't rained in a month. The corn took to the fire eagerly, crackling and popping, offering itself to heaven. Julio stood watching their field burn to the ground until he could bear it no longer. Before anyone could stop him, he rushed into the field and tried to put out the flames with a blanket. The soldiers pointed at him and laughed. Only the captain wasn't amused. He ordered his men to surround the plot. How her brother danced, trying to outrun the fire. But the soldiers refused to let him escape. Julio leaped into the air like he was taking wing, his ribs etched in flames, his arms straining heavenward, his neck extending like a hissing goose. Aura prayed that he would fly, join the black-throated jay in the seba tree. Instead, he fell to the ground, his skin charred and smoking, dying miserably in what was left of their corn. In the years following his death, Aura worshipped her brother like a saint. Everything she did was refracted through that wall of flames. Every sacrifice she made, she offered up to him. A 
settling, rustle, a sudden rustling catches her attention. It's Julio, his scrawny flanks scattering leaves. There you are, she whispers, afraid that listening to her brother will erase everything that isn't him. Oh, perdóname, he says, flicking off leaves. I've been busy. Oh, so even the dead are busy these days? Aura grins. I've brought you sugar buns and tea. Drink, it will give you strength. Thank you. Aura bites into a bun, licking the sugar from her lips. A few errant raindrops prick her forehead. Are you still 14, Julio, or have you gotten old like me? She asks playfully. Tell me, are angels ageless? Shh, hermana, I haven't come for games. What is it then? He's among us. Who? Aura tries the tea, wishing she'd brewed the cinnamon kind instead. El asesino. There's so many here, Julio. The hotel is full of them. The one who killed me, who burned our field. The captain? Yes, except he's a colonel now. You served him pork chops yesterday. Aura tries to pinpoint his face. And she sees him, yes. The one with the cartoon muscles and sunglasses sitting with the Americans. Her throat tightens. Do you remember him now? Julio asks. I think I'll stop right there. <laughs> okay. Other questions? Yes, Beverly. Um, question, I guess, about the format, for lack of a better word, but as you mentioned, how each, um, you know, how the story kind of moves from place to place, and how each chapter is so distinct and ends with the news and everything, it just, I think it really adds to the storytelling, and can you tell me how it ended up that way? How, uh-huh. and. Okay. Especially, I'm sorry, the audience is missing this, but at the beginning of each chapter, how you have the little lines about what's to come, I just thought that that was so tantalizing. Oh, thank you. Um, Well, that came from um, reading and rereading The Leopard, which is one of my favorite novels. Do you all know that book? I think we read it in our our graduate class, right? It was almost, I think the class practically staged an insurrection when I forced them to read The Leopard, but I think you're the only one who may have loved it as much as I did, yeah. Um, But anyway, it's just, it it just seemed something very old-fashioned to me, and um, and it also had a bit of, um, you know, that Chronicles feel of, uh, of, um, like almost a telenovela or something. Uh, yeah, and then in between each chapter, um, and this was a way for me to con- contextualize a little bit because this hotel is very insulated in a way, although so much is going on inside its its marbled hallways and doors and whatever, but there's a whole world out there that um, tries to penetrate in the form of, of news and a kind of other... Um, uh, other other people and incidents, and so in between the chapters, I have these news sections, um, and uh, we hear about you know anthropological finds. We have an astrologer chiming in regularly, um, and and these, I think also these scenes. I try and you know these news bits and so on are often um, comical and. Uh, form a kind of absurd counterpoint to some of the heavier stuff that's going on in, in the book, such as the section I just read. Yeah. And I was, you know, as a former journalist as well, I was a journalist for almost a decade, uh, it's always fun to play with that, with that constraining form uh, and, and make it 
you know, do what I could have never done as a journalist. You know, just yeah. Any other questions, Sam? Um, so, what kind of significance do you attach to to naming your characters? Like, you know, these, these names like Aura and Rubio um, and Suki Palacio. Palacios? Palacio. Palacio. I think it's plural, yeah. Mm -hmm. And like, I I just kind of wonder, like, what type of, like, how do you come up with these names and do you, is it kind of just a kind of, you know, uh, reach to the hat, you pull them out, or is there some sort of process that goes behind? Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I I think a lot about uh, names and audition names quite a bit and and uh, until I get them right the, almost the character can't move on uh, I mean that's one of the first things I do when I'm when I'm just beginning to almost like pre-organize things I'm not really very organized writing a novel but the names really matter to me I need to know at least who the a few of the main characters are and why um, why they're being named that and sometimes I, I choose them just based on kind of the melodiousness of, of the name um, and then uh, in other times, um, like I'm thinking, for example, of the Lourdes character in Dreaming in Cuban, which also means Lourdes, which also means heavy. And, you know, it just seemed kind of the perfect, uh, perfect name for her. Uh, her name and her daughter's name are Puente, you know, the, the daughter especially being a bridge between kind of the Cuban-American exile community and the, and the island. I mean, sometimes they're not that neat. Uh, sometimes I just, uh, for a while, uh, I had photocopied a lot of pages from old uh, yearbooks, University of Havana yearbooks, you know, for particularly uh, frilly and uh, old-fashioned kinds of names. And, uh, and so that, that often, I would look at those and, and just try and kind of mix and match until it sounded just right. Yeah. But I think it's important, and once somebody is named, it's very hard for me to change their name. I mean, it, it, it causes all kinds of earthquakes, and you know, I mean, you know, the earth trembles when you change somebody's name, and, and it has other kinds of implications that you can't even uh, predict or fathom even. Uh, any other questions? Yes? So, um, when you were reading that excerpt, and it's something I noticed also when reading Dreaming and Keeping, is that, like, oftentimes characters, like also with um, Lourdes, they have this tendency to sort of travel, sort of spin off into their own spaces mentally, and, you know, they're literally having conversations with the dead or things like that. At that, and also sort of the element of sometimes juxtaposing scenes of real violence or, or anger or something like that was sort of a much more gentler scene. And I guess my question is, what what draws you to sort of paint the picture like that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I, I think um, in terms of this juxtaposition of the the violence with, say, more gent, you know, gentler scenes, etc. I don't know. I I often um, when I'm, I I read work aloud a lot, especially in the later stages, and um, and um, and I, I try and think sometimes uh, musically about sections. Um, and for me, when I listen to good music or I listen to s- symphonies or whatever, there's 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 a um, 
kind of wonderful ebb and flow that, that happens uh, emotionally, uh, you know, times that things quicken and come to a crescendo, and then you get a kind of release or a respite or, a, you know, time to breathe and regroup. And, and so I try and be aware of that, not so much in early drafts, but, but later when I'm uh, kind of retracking things and organizing things and moving things around, I try and keep that in mind, you know, that, um, that some of that... Acute tension uh, needs, you know, that, that contraction also needs release, and um, and so I think something that I, I probably do more unconsciously now than than consciously. Um, what was the first part of your question again? Oh, talk of the dead, yeah. Um, well, I, I think um, I, I tend to prefer a, a kind of close third-person narrator, and so that, for me, gives me the opportunity to do a couple of things. One is to go for a sort of deep interiority um, so that we can get... Uh, so that we can get their their thoughts and and as a reader you're kind of experiencing it almost as a first person that's how close these third person points of view are um so you have that, but you also have the maneuverability to describe thunderstorms or distant news or you know i mean you, you, it just i just love that the the um, the maneuverability I have with that kind of voice. Um, in terms of talking with the dead, uh, I don't know. My my experience often has been uh, that uh, we do have conversations with the dead, whether they're other writers or relatives, or um, sometimes you feel uh, you know the sense of inheritances that you don't even know where. It, where it's come from, or you have a conversation with a grandmother, but you realize that what she's saying also harkens back two generations later for what she's observed. So I, I think in many ways we're always talking to the dead, not literally talking to ghosts, but always in conversation with the past, and that the, the past is continually suffusing the present. It's what, in a way, floats the present. And so to me, I don't make that radical distinctions, just like I, I think um, I don't make such radical distinctions between what's technically, literally possible and what's impossible. You know, for me, these are all kind of interesting perforated zones, uh, and I like to play along those zones. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. Yes? Um, you talked briefly about sort of the writing process, uh, your writing process a little bit, but just sort of moving away from the context of, or the content of the text itself. Um, when you write a novel, do you outline everything before you do it? Do you know what's going to happen in the end before you sit down? Never, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, I try to, in fact, dissuade my students who are all, you know, so um, try want to be organized and, and I just usually persuade them that uh, writing novels is is not an efficient endeavor <laughs> whatsoever, <laughs> to say the least, um, and that uh, you often can't plan your your best stuff, and uh, and that you always have to be, I think, open to mis- not only open to but invite mystery and chaos and things you only dimly perceive into into the work, uh, and often send tap roots into very unsavory places and. And 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 you know move toward the the 
the violence and what you're afraid of and all, all of these things. And, and you can't plot that out in a neat sort of way. I mean, that's not to say that it doesn't help to have a notion of the horizon of where you're moving toward, but, um, but to be open to the myriad, I say myriad, but you know, billions of possibilities. You know, when, you're, when you choose this over that, you're, you're also um, cutting out all the different possibilities of path B, you know. So I like I like things to stay as open and uh, febrile as possible for as long as possible. Uh. Any other questions? Yes, hi. It, it's difficult because I was responding to your answer to the last question, but really what I wanted to talk to you more about was uh, the whole question of historical novels yeah. and uh, that the style that you just described seems a little bit inconsistent, but there are a lot of things that I think are inconsistent about doing historical novels because you don't necessarily, as you said, you like getting away from the journalistic writing, right? Journalistic writing, you have to be factual, you have to be true. In a historical novel, you don't have to be true. You can throw in everything because it's a novel. Mm -hmm. But then people who, if you're using real people and real incidents, your readers consciously and unconsciously do think that those things happened or mm -hmm. might have happened, mm -hmm. and they do believe a lot of that. So sometimes you're telling untruths, whether you want to or not, because you're writing a novel and mm -hmm. you're not planning it out and writing, you know, step by step. And I have some real questions about that, but I'd love to have a chance to talk to you afterwards. Yeah, no, no, I, it's such an interesting, um, really dilemma, and and I'm actually in the thick of it right now because I'm uh, I, I'm writing a book about El Comandante Fidel Castro. And uh, and I absorbed everything I could. I saw every documentary that I could download and see and whatever on him. Read countless. Saw him do you know, just sat through many, many, many hours of speeches. And you know, so I felt like I could get him right. And believe me, there's hundreds of thousands of hours of speeches. I didn't you know listen to them all, but. Um, so much written on him and whatever, and but then to write what I what I'm writing, I had to shelve it all and just tell the story and and make things up and make up incidents incidents and um, and and hope and feel that somehow, even though it's not entirely factual, that I'm getting at some uh, essence about the man uh, that. Uh, Sticking to the facts wouldn't necessarily be any more illuminating, you know. Um, I loved, for example, I don't know who has anyone here read *The Feast of the Goat* by Mario Vargas Llosa, which is about the, Trujillo, the, um, the Dominican dictator. Anyway, it's a fascinating, um, it's a fascinating book, and Trujillo. Um, I mean, I don't know what's true or what isn't true in the novel. Um, I mean, there are a few things that are true. He was assassinated in this way, and um, you know, there were some historical figures that you know I, I, I remember and you know read about historically. Um, but uh, nothing I have read, and I was a journalist in the Caribbean and covered the Dominican Republic. Nothing I had ever read came as close to capturing. Uh, the the fear this man inspired uh, as Vargas Llosa's novel Feast of the Goat. So novels do other kinds of things. You know, I think they go for a deeper, uh, maybe a deeper psychology, a deeper emotional experience uh, than than you might get from uh, sticking to the facts. Um, 
I sometimes tell, Sam could vouch for this, that I always say sometimes don't let facts get in the way of a good story, you know? Do you, don't, do you ever question that? I do, except that, except that when you when you say uh, it's a novel, then kind of all bets are off. I mean, I'm not pretending it's something else, you know. Um, and uh, so, so I, I think I, I think it's um, for people who would who want to read a historical novel and perhaps. Uh, have to reconcile the fact that not everything in there is going to be true, or you know, e- or maybe even approximations of the truth. Y- you know, that's the opportunity cost of re- reading a novel over, you know, book of history or, or you know, biography or whatever. And it just depends what kind of ride you want to go on, I-, I guess. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I'm struggling a lot with that uh, right now. So interesting. You should mention that. Does anyone have maybe another question? Yeah? Yes, yeah, so I, I was just wondering about, uh, you know, when you chose uh, Sacripolacio's um, heritage, like when you, when you choose heritage, like, yeah. The Japanese-Mexican. Like, what type of thought goes into that and why? Why choose this specific? Right. Yeah, it is a good question. Um, um, well, my, my interest with this sort of hyphenated, multiply hyphenated identities goes way back. Um, and I was... I was um, in my third novel, uh, Monkey Hunting, uh, I have a character who's Afro-Cuban Chinese uh, <laughs> who ends up fighting for the Americans in Vietnam to complicate things, identity issues and whatever. Um, I have a daughter who's part Japanese um, Japanese and Jewish on her dad's side and on my side, um, Cuban-Guatemalan. So she's multiply hyphenated. Um, and and uh, anyway, I, I've just become very interested specifically uh, um, you know, over the last 15 years or so of Asians in the Americas. Um, it's a, kind of a burgeoning field in history. Um, I belong to a little, I, I belonged, I don't know, I, I just kind of muscled my way into this interdisciplinary group at UCLA that was studying that, folks in sociology and history and economics and whatever. And, uh, and it's just another, uh, to me, it, um, just a, another a facet of my fascination with uh, immigration, immigration, emigration, and and the possibilities of reinvention that 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 opens up. Uh, so would it be possible that actually that kind of was partially based on your daughter? Or well, uh, yes. Well, just these notions of how do you. Um, I don't know. To me, these are these are interesting combinations. For my daughter, uh, who grew up in Los Angeles, where a, a kind of a, a background like hers wasn't all that unusual, um, she probably doesn't. I mean, doesn't even focus very much on it. I mean, she identifies more um, with her affinities. I mean, she's a musician, or she, when she was younger, she was a surfer, and I mean, those are the kinds of things. And and I don't know that um, these kind of strict. Uh, categories for nationality and ethnicities and whatever. I, I don't. I think what's actually happening in the world is outpacing our language for, for um, you know. I mean, the language is is way behind what's what's happening in the world. So, um, but it's something I'm I'm very very interested in. Yeah. Okay. Thank you all for coming out on this lovely evening. Um, I will be signing books over there. I also just quickly wanted to mention I've left a few cards out front, up in the front. 
Um, I'm organizing um, a writer's conference this summer out at Ghost Ranch, which is a former home, part-time home of Georgia O'Keeffe, beautiful mountains of northern New Mexico. And um, I'm going to be teaching a workshop. Chris Abani, the Nigerian-American writer, is going to be there. Um, We've got Denise Chavez. Um, If you haven't had the the pleasure of ever hearing her read. She gets a standing ovation wherever she goes. Um, And we have uh, Kimiko Han and Martina Espada also doing some poetry workshops. So if you want to find out more about it, uh, we have some cards out front. Anyway, I'll be over there. Thank you again for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.